0: Decided to go a little more subtle this week uh, in honor of respect to where we're at. I'm wearing black in remembrance of the Dodgers and just a little subtle uh, Cubs thing that Mary Collins lent to me. And so anyway, a lot of fun with that. But talking about more uh, significant things, we're talking this morning through Philippians uh, 2 if you want to turn your Bibles there uh, and we'll dive into the text. We're actually looking at verses 12 through 18 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we have one in the chair in front of you, we'd invite you to join us in looking at that. Different topic. Don't you hate when things you have don't work right? Don't you hate when things that you have don't work right? If you're like me, you've had different possessions, different things over the years that you've had that had an intended use, and the more you get into it, you're like, man, crazy thing just doesn't work right. I bought this car. I was about 28 years old. This is a a, a Lotus Esprit, if you recognize that car. I was actually very into this car at one point. I actually visited the Lotus dealership on a regular basis and saw lots of cars I couldn't afford. And so I told a gentleman that worked there, I said, if you ever come upon a really crazy deal for these, I would love to be in on that. And so uh, you, you say things like that, but not expecting to actually get a call. I get a call from a guy that worked in the service department at Lotus. He says, listen, I have this guy, I'm living in Chicago. He's like, I have this guy that lives in Atlanta that actually just put a new engine in this older Lotus, and he said, and all he wants to do, he's just done with dealing with the car. He got a new one, and he just wants to get back what he paid for the new engine, which was eleven thousand dollars. Not bad. So I said, okay. So I hopped on a flight and picked up this car for eleven thousand dollars. Pretty cool car, right? So this was a a a super big deal. Adrian put up with this, and uh, I get this car. I'm super excited, but I start driving it and man, it never worked right. Like, it, it, I knew what it could do. I knew the potential. I'd read the stats, but man, every single day I felt like I was dealing with a new issue from like a weird gasoline smell in the cockpit of the car, which that was concerning, to, uh, to the, the clutch slipping, to the transmission not working right, to the turbo lagging, to the power steering. I think maybe in the course of the one year that I owned it, I probably had like three days that it actually worked right. But man... Those were a great three days. When that thing was working right, I mean, it was quite the car to drive. I mean, it was a piece of racing machinery. Of course, I wouldn't go over the speed limit in it, but I really enjoyed that car thoroughly. And uh, I was thinking about it, and as this relates, and maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, maybe it's a stretch, but I was thinking about it. It's like, this is, to me, a picture of the church. This is a picture of the church. When it's working right, it is an amazing thing. But when it's not, man, is it a frustration to the world around us, to ourselves. When we get it right, it can be an amazing thing. A lot of times, though, unfortunately, we get noted in the media and the world around us for when we're not working right, when we're known for being judgmental, divisive, and self-focused. But when we do actually get it right, marriages are restored, children are equipped to thrive, the poor have needs met, the sick are healed, the lonely are welcomed, the lost are found, the world takes notice, and God is appropriately praised when the church is working right. What we're going to see in our text this morning is it really hinges on one big thing. Let me pray, and then we'll explain that. God, thanks so much this morning for a chance to look in your word and get a picture of what your design was for the church. And when it is working right, when it is working right, the way that you're literally brought pleasure from that, the way that the world sees it as a light, and the way that we get to rejoice in what we're doing, I pray for us as this little church in Agora Hills, that this might be a morning that things click, that things actually resonate in our mind from this text of what it needs for us as a body collectively to work right. ask that you'd speak to us through this text. In Jesus Christ's name, I pray. Amen. So the first thing, so I mentioned this working right. When the church is working right, the first thing I want to identify in verses 12 and 13 is God is pleased. Take a look. It says, therefore, my beloved... As you have all have always obeyed, so now, not only as in, in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. There's a lot packed into those couple of verses. I want to explore this morning. The first thing you catch the therefore, and anytime you're reading in Scripture and you see the word therefore, you want to know why is it therefore. And so therefore, as just if you remember last week, we had just finished talking about in the, the text about the fact that Jesus, after he was sacrificed on the cross for our sins, that he is then elevated uh, to be a name above all names. And so then it pointed out, and John even had us exercise it last week, getting down on our knees to acknowledge that fact that at some point there's a date in the coming near future that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so he's saying, therefore, because that is happening, because that is upcoming, we need to actually respond appropriately to that truth. Because he's exalted, we should be motivated by this. I noticed, too, that he says, my beloved. I love that, that he genuinely cares for these people. He wants what's best for them. What does he charge them to do? Therefore, my beloved, because we know this about Jesus... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my present, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The key word that we start with there is to obey. So much of the Christian life hinges on that one simple word, obedience. Obedience. And you notice that he's not confronting them for their non-obedience. He's encouraging them because he's saying, you need to just keep going. You've done great thus far. And some of us this morning, that's exactly what we need to hear is like, hey, you're doing great. You're, you're heading in the right direction. But here's the challenge. Here's the hook of what he points to. What is he saying? He says, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. In other words... When nobody is looking, obedience still matters. Isn't that really what it it comes down to? Even when nobody sees, even when nobody notices, when there's nobody around, our obedience still matters. And isn't that the hard part? I uh, was fascinated this past summer by the the previews for this movie coming out. I don't know if you had a chance to catch this movie. The Secret Life of Pets. Wonder what they do all day. Wonder what they do. And you remember the premise of it. I didn't even see the movie, but I saw the clips from it. The premise was the idea that there, there are these well behaved animals when everybody's home. Did you guys see this? Anybody even heard of this? Uh, and so they're well behaved animals when, when everybody's watching, but soon as the owners leave, what happened? Like there's a party. It's rock and roll. Like they're going crazy. This poodle was dancing and headbanging. Like all, the, all this stuff. Kind of a, a fun idea. And really, I think it paints a picture of what it's describing here in the text. Is like, listen, it doesn't just matter when we're under the view of others. It matters what goes on behind the scenes. That's true obedience. That's what I'm calling to. And it's interesting because you think about that for a moment, that there needs to be a shift from attempting to please others to recognizing that we are accountable to God because he really is alone, our judge. We don't have to give an account to anybody else at the end of our days other than him. So the ironic thing is we have our best behavior on, on Sunday mornings and around others. And, and the truth is what it really matters is who we're accountable to God. He's the one that's judging us. I've gotten to be known at, uh, actually, I don't know how this happened, but at uh, 24 Fitness, I know a decent amount of people there, and they refer to me as the reverend, which I'd like to rid myself of that, but whatever. And, and so, but I think it's, it's funny because I've noticed that even people that don't really know much about me other than that I'm the reverend, a lot of times somebody will say, maybe you've had this happen to yourself, will say a curse word and then they'll apologize to you. You apologize, like somebody will say, oh, sorry, Reverend, I, I should have said the, uh, this and I, or whatever. And, 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 and has anybody else had that happen in your life? They find out you're a Christian and all of a sudden you're the swear police. And uh, <laughs> and, and, and so people always apologize. And I'm like, listen, I, you don't have to answer to me. You don't have to answer to me. And that's a wonderful thing for us to be reminded of. Listen, it doesn't matter. They're, they're not having to answer to Paul. They're having to answer to almighty god and maybe that's why he says to work out your own salvation with t- fear and trembling because when it finally clicks in our mind who we're actually accountable to who we're answering to all of a sudden you're like whoa this is more serious than i thought this is more serious than i thought now these two verses there you might not notice it at first glance are packed with a ton of uh theology that that's really fascinating I, for years and centuries, people have really debated in this whole process of becoming more like Christ, who's responsible for that? What's, what part is man's responsibility? What part is God's responsibility in this? Is it all man? Is it all God? Is it, is it a blend? And the interesting thing in this text is that Paul doesn't let us off the hook of that tension. He, that, that relationship uh, between the two, he doesn't get, there's two sides of that coin that he doesn't try to harmonize. He just points to both sides. That we're to work it out, and then he's working in. This combined effort of sorts, the divine human partnership. And notice the first thing in the part on our part of it, it says to work out your salvation. Now, it's important because you can jump to some conclusions about that, like, well, that sure sounds like I'm earning my salvation or trying to do something to achieve it. But notice that it doesn't say work for your salvation, it doesn't say work toward your salvation. It doesn't even say work at your salvation. It says to work out your salvation. The idea of like a, like if you think about it, like anybody that goes to a gym or does any of that, you all have muster, muscles somewhere under there, right? Like I, I keep telling myself about the six pack. It's down there somewhere. Like it, but, but until you start using that muscle, you have to work it out work it out in order for it to work. That's the same idea with our salvation. It's there, we just have to use it. We just have to use it. So he's saying, exercise what's already there. Put into practice what is true already about you. And that takes consistent effort. It takes a lot of work and it's to be done, it says, with fear and trembling. It's important to understand those words too, that fear and trembling isn't fear and trembling of of torment or of of punishment, but it's fear and trembling with a reverential feel, a fear or a holy concern. In other words, you're t- recognizing how serious our actions are. And we're taking a really, we want to do everything possible to avoid doing anything that would dishonor God or would offend. Just like, man, I, I just want to, I would just want to walk I want to walk lightly here, I want to make sure that I'm not doing anything that would be offensive to Almighty God, because I recognize that is a big deal. So here, he points out our piece in it, but it's interesting if you think about it, verse 12 would not be possible without verse 13. So while we're working it out, God is working in. It's awesome to think about it. And that was what Jesus reminded us in John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing, zero, zip, zilch. You can't do it independent of him. That's why it's pretty cool to see that God calls us to service and obedience, but then he also empowers us to do it. Notice it says to will, that he gives us to will and to work. Both the prompting piece and the performing is attributed to God. He's saying, I'm calling you to do this, but guess what? I'm doing the prompting, I'm giving those nudges, and a lot of us are constantly under those nudges, and I'm giving you the power to do it. You're like, well, that's probably one of the more encouraging verses in Scripture. Like that, You start to realize, you're like, hey, that, that sounds pretty good to me. I love Paul, he grasped this in Colossians 129, he says, I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Our one hope to do any of this obedience thing is literally him working in me. So how does, how does that all work? Like, what's that balance look like? What's our part in it? Isn't that the question that you come up with? I would propose that that's a healthy tension. But I would suggest that to some degree, we're along for the ride. When, I was, uh, my, when my kids were especially young, we'd go to a grocery store. I don't know, I think this is a universal kid thing that they wanna do. They always wanted to push the cart. Anybody else have this with your, with, with your own kids growing up? It'd drive you crazy. You're like, look at the size of this cart. You can't even move this thing. But finally, you find a compromise. And maybe you've done this with your own kids. You let them be down there and they can b- barely see. And you're actually scared for everybody's like heels and shins. And you're like, man, someone's going to get hurt here for sure. But how do you solve it? What do you do? Come up over top of them and you're actually the one, they're down below, they're pushing this sucker along, but what's going on? You're up there, you're driving the car. You're, you're controlling what direction it goes, you're hitting the brakes when it needs to, you keep, you're keeping them from hitting the cans on the right side or the, the oatmeal on the left side. Like you're, you're guiding this, and the kid thinks they're doing this themselves. And I got this picture in my mind. Isn't that a little bit of this partnership? hey, we're putting in the effort. Like that kid's definitely pushing the thing. But guess who's actually steering this? Guess who's reigning over all of it? And that's the reminder slash encouragement that we need to know. He's the one that's doing the prompting and he's the one that's doing the empowering. Prompting and empowering. It's a beautiful picture. I love that you look at that and what's the outcome of that is when we get this right, when we're putting putting in our part and he's, He's doing the, the work. He says, he says both to will and to work. And what is the last three, four words there? For his good pleasure. Isn't that awesome? When we get this obedience thing right, we have, think about that for a moment, we have the potential to bring almighty God, the God that created all, sustains all, reigns over all, to literally bring God pleasure with our obedience. Man, talk about a compelling thing to think through. Like, I have the potential to bring pleasure to God. That's an awesome thought. That's an awesome truth. And that's what he's saying is the outcome of when we get it right. That you have a dad up in heaven. And I love my, my friend Joe always talks about family theology, making sure that you always run, the, uh, run your theology, your understanding of scripture through the filter of knowing that it's a loving father. So try that out when you're studying God's word, running it through that filter, realizing that your father's up uh, up above and being like, nice job, Good, good work. This is awesome, good job. This pleases me when you do that. When it's working right, God is pleased. Second one, we won't spend as much time in this next one. This picture is that, that the world sees us shine when, we work right, when it works right. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain." First couple verses addresses obedience as far as it relates to action. Now it shifts to attitude. It's not just about doing the right things. It's to do it with the right motivation and attitude. Look at the attitudes that it it addresses. It's fascinating out of all of the things it could have picked here. What does it focus on as an evidence that you're working out your, your salvation? Not grumbling or disputing. I love how practical scripture is because aren't those some of the things that we struggle with the most? Let's start just thinking about grumbling. What, what is grumbling? What, what, what actually constitutes as, as grumbling? It's not typically loud or obnoxious, but it's typically subtle discontent. It's typically evident in somebody's body language, right? A lot of times that's when grumbling is, is most evident. You start to see they kind of walk around kind of with a, a frown, a little bit of a grouchy look, shoulders down. They literally look worn out. They kind of, they, they, they sigh a lot. They, they owe brother a lot. They, they kind of roll their head. You can see they just have a, a discontent that's literally taken over their demeanor. And what does that move you to ask that person? Is everything okay? Ooh, that's a dangerous question for the grumbler, isn't it? Anybody ever open up a flood of toxicity by asking that question to somebody grumpy? They're like, oh, I I shouldn't have never asked because there's a lot wrong in that person's mind. That grumbling person is a, a pretty toxic person to be around and that's what we want. That's what he's saying. If you're gonna be a light in the world, that's what you gotta avoid. You gotta avoid that. That person is proudly clinging to their rights. There's a sense of entitlement. In other words, it should be this way, but instead it's that way, and I don't like it. That's the grumbler. It should be this way, but instead it's that way, and I don't like it. That's what we slip into so naturally. That's the entitlement piece. That's the grumbler piece. And that's what he's directly calling us out on if we're going to be a light in the world around us. I don't know, there's many people that travel on planes here or anybody's sat next to this person before on the plane, this picture that he's about to put up. Anybody sat next to that kid? Literally, I think they, I think they moved that kid from one plane to the next to the next just to test our sanctification. Literally, like you go, you go there and you're just like, oh, not the screaming, grumbling kid again. Are you kidding me? And a lot of us have been stuck in that. We joke about this, kind of a, the crying baby thing. But really, isn't that how we come across to the world around us when we're just known for our negativity? And instead, we've tried to tried to put nice labels and terms on it and we wear it as a badge of honor. It's critical thinking, or I'm a realist, or I'm just being authentic. And you're like, no, nope, that's not it. That's what God is is calling us out on. And look at what it says, how many things we're supposed to do. Which things actually sneak by that we're allowed to grumble about? How many things? Do all things without grumbling. All things. There's no liberty. There's not one thing that you're like, ah, you can do all these things, but this one thing, I get it. You can grumble. No, all things without grumbling. The next thing, and this is something we all, the first one we definitely struggle with and we need to hold each other accountable to even spouses, can help with that. How about the second one, not disputing? That's a little bit less subtle. That's more of a verbal expression of disagreement. I don't know if you've had that person in your life that just loves to debate things, loves to argue, loves to, even when you're just like, I didn't even know we were arguing about this. Where where did this go? How did this land here? Where Where did this come from? That person is also exhausting. That person is also exhausting and definitely not a light in the world around them. Go back to 24 fitness as that as explanation. I was just there last, last week and in the morning there's a, a guy that was arguing with another guy and they're talking about Trump versus Hillary. and man, I thought it was gonna go to blows right there. I'm hiding behind machines and ducking for, for shelter because it gets pretty heated. Anybody else have any? seen anything heated related to this upcoming election? Has there been any disputing going on? Has, has there been any, we even call it a debate. Like, come on. Why can't we just have both candidates present their piece, what they want to do, the other person present, and then they go home and we decide. Like, instead, everything, there's, I'm getting on a tangent. Um, but but here's, the, here's the thing that I, that I point out there is if you want to just perfectly blend in with the world around you, man, just grumble and dispute. You want to just If you want to camouflage in the world around you, that is exactly how you do it. But if possible, if you want to, if you want to be seen as children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, you get those two things right. You get some rain over that in your life. You get some control over that. You have some control over your words. That's how you're seen as a light. And the last one that it points to there also says holding fast to the word. Holding fast to the word. You actually have a source of truth that you live by. Most people on this planet that you engage with, their source of truth is acquired one way, life experience and accumulated knowledge. Life experience and accumulated knowledge. Most people, they come to their conclusions, they just say, you know what, this is what I've seen, this is what I've heard, this is what I've learned, and that's the filter that I run everything through and I make my decisions by. What sets us apart from the world around us is we say, you know what, you know how I guide my life? Is this book. I run things through this as a truth source. I recognize I hold fast to this word. I'm not, I I don't pick and choose which things. A lot of people like that kind of best of Bible approach where you're like, "Ah, I like this part, but not so much that part. I'll take this, I'm leaving that. Isn't that just playing God yourself? But here, the person that's set apart, the person that's gonna be noticed in the world around them is somebody that says, you know what? I have a truth source and it's not me. Ooh, talk about standing out and being a, a, a light in a, in a crooked, broken generation. Man, when you start saying, this is how I live my life, man, the world will take notice, and that's what it even says to you. That's why at the end, he's just like, man, I, my, my hope for you is not to, he says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. In other words, this is Paul saying, the way that you can be an encouragement to me is that you actually live this out, that I don't feel regret after all of my investment in you. Think through your own life. Think through the people for a moment that have invested and poured into you, parents, mentors, teachers, pastors, how devastating for them to watch your life when and if you were to derail, where they're saying, oh man, Feel like my life was a waste, all that time that I spent with them. I, why, why did I bother when they're when they're going off doing their own thing? Paul saying, Man, it would be worth it to me all that I've been through if you're striving and chasing after me. And when we do, it says, we shine to the world around us. Very last thing, and we'll be brief with this, verse 17. So the last piece is that we get to rejoice in our ministry. It says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. You remember a couple of weeks ago when I was breaking down another section of scripture and we we're talking about that, I mentioned this idea that when we're others focused, you can celebrate regardless of life circumstances. When you're others focused, it doesn't really matter what happens to you because you're like, hey, it, it's all good as long as others are getting closer to Christ, as long as they're growing in their faith. And that's the same point that Paul makes here. What, is, what does he say? He says, uh, it doesn't matter if I'm poured out as a drink offering as long as your faith is growing. It's Like that's a win-win, I don't even care. When it, sometimes when you read terms in Scripture, you're like, "What's a what's a drink offering?" I'm like, well, that, that's kind of a weird phrase, kind of a term. That actually is a terminology from the Old Testament. They're coming. If you're familiar with the Old Testament a little bit, they're coming out of a sacrificial system. Do we know this? A sacrificial system where they were being trained to understand that sin requires some kind of a payment for sin. So, a pretty gruesome thing in the Old Testament was literally animal sacrifice. They're put on an altar and sacrifice for the sins of people. So that's one of the the pieces that's kind of tough even when you're reading the Old Testament uh, to read, but it gives a picture of that our our sin has consequence to it. One of the things that in an animal offering, when the animal is there and it's being burned on an altar, they had what was called a drink offering. It was a drink offering of either wine, oil, or honey, that was, literally per, that was literally poured on top of that blazing fire of the altar of an animal being burned. And guess what happened when that was poured onto the altar? Kind of the same thing if you're like at a fire and like a, at a, a camp, uh, when you're camping or something, you put a little bit of a, a water on it. And what happens? Kind of a puff of smoke, right? You pour that on it and then probably just as quickly as it gets poured on it, it's, it's just gone. It's just a puff. It really, and isn't that cool to think of Paul, the Apostle Paul who wrote a good percentage of the New Testament, the one that God used to to expand the church, even the reason likely many of us are here today because of his ministry to Gentiles. And this is that guy, and he's saying, man, my life would be fine just being a puff of smoke on the altar if the outcome was you as a people group growing in your passion and your faith and your commitment to Jesus Christ? What if we started seeing through that same kind of lens? We started saying like, hey, whatever it takes, this life isn't, and this is hard for us to say, man, is it hard, isn't about me. It's about others and the impact I'm having on them. It's not about me. It's about others, the, my actions, my labor. All of a sudden, when there's that twist and shift in thinking, you're like, hey, I don't really mind any of the hard work because if the outcome is others come to know and love Jesus Christ, it makes it all worth it. You're like, that's going to all not matter in the next 100,000 years because when you put your life about somebody else, you're like, that's when you unlock the key to what real, joyful, rejoicing life looks like. We were in our life group on uh, Friday night and uh, we were going through some of the discussion questions from last week's uh, message from John uh, Irwin had shared a a few discussion questions. Maybe some of you even did that this week. And one of the questions was asking, can you think of somebody in your circle or in your network of relationships that you really see as being selfless? It's really interesting just hearing people talk and share their different uh, accounts of somebody that's selfless in their life and the one that was the most meaningful to me, not that they weren't all meaningful, but one was a wife who was sharing with tear-filled eyes about her husband who hadn't arrived yet because he was late from coming from his job in the city that he makes that commute every day. She was sharing and she was just talking about him. She's tearing up and she's just like, he just has such a, a heart to serve. He's, he's not concerned about himself and his needs. And the, the quote that I caught that was really cool, she said, he finds joy when everyone around him is happy he finds joy when everyone around him is happy i was like man isn't that the picture of what we're talking about here when all of a sudden it's not all wrapped up in me it starts looking outward that's when he says man he says i hope that that person that that he says i'll rejoice and my, and my hope is, is that others would rejoice as well. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me, he says. This picture of what he's invited us to is a selfless life where others are a priority over ourselves. When we get that right, man, we get to rejoice in our own ministry. So do you see how everybody wins in this scenario? When the church gets it right, who, what, is, what was the first thing we mentioned? God is literally pleased. We have the potential to please Almighty God by our obedience. When we get our attitudes right, then who else is blessed? The world around us sees us as a light. They're like, man, that's attractive. I want whatever they're drinking. Like, that, 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 that's good. That's good. And then lastly, when we get the church thing right, the obedience thing right, then we're blessed as well. So this, this whole picture, I go back to my lotus Esprit, when that thing was working right, when that was firing on all cylinders, when that turbo was clicking, man, that thing was so fun to drive. And that's what God is pointing to for his church. We can be that when we get this obedience thing right. And the good news is, is that he's like, man, I'm along for the ride. I'm the one pushing the cart. I'm the one controlling it. I'm directing, I'm guiding. And so you're not doing this alone, which for me Is really encouraging. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for this text and this picture of what you've designed the church to be that we'd really actually take this obedience thing seriously. Paul's call to us was to work it out with fear and trembling, recognizing who the righteous and perfect judge is that we give an account to also recognizing what's at stake either we can be that light either we can bring pleasure to god either we can have fulfillment in our own ministry or we can just kind of blend in with the culture around us god the choice you allow to us that's the whole thing of free will I thank you god that if we do lean into that you will empower us you'll guide us you'll motivate us sustain us god we praise you for that Thank you so much for this picture of what happens when we work right. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. Gordon, as I was sitting down and brought up the point about the offering that that, that is poured out, the intent was for that to cause a sweet aroma to go up to God. And I was just thinking about that, going into our weeks ahead, how awesome to think of our lives having the potential to be a sweet aroma to God. Let's live like that this week, amen? God bless you. Have a great Sunday.